Welcome to a mental health film comment. This is Brian here with you. The 2007 film Things We Lost in the Fire features Halle Berry as a widow due to her husband being murdered. She is a homicide survivor in this film. The, the film follows the aftermath of that. The podcast um, today, we are, we are joined by psychologist, author, podcast host, and homicide survivor, Jan Canty. Uh, welcome, Jan. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. I Thanks for it. having me. Um, I do want to mention your podcast. That is Domino Effect of Murder. Correct. Cor correct. And the book, A Life Divided, a psychologist's memoir about the double life and murder of her husband and the road to recovery. Long title, but yeah, that's okay. <laughs> thank you. Well, again, I, I do want to thank you for, for, for coming on today. Um, now, those who um, have heard this podcast know that this is a commentary track format. It's not a movie um, podcast, so many of, much of the commentary will not be related to the movie, but rather for mental health issues. If you would like to watch the movie and listen to this podcast, I will be on the other side of the pause button. Now, if you are triggered by any content or um, content in, in the course of this interview, I am going to mention the two crisis, the two major crisis text line numbers. In the US, you can text NAMI, N-A-M-I to 741741. If you are in the UK, you can text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Now, um, again, I, I do want to uh, welcome you to the podcast. I wanted to, I guess, first of all, ask, as far as grief and bereavement, um, what, what is conflicted grief? I, conflicted grief is a form, there's lots of different kinds of grief. And with conflicted grief, there is a lot of ambivalence. There is some relief in the grief, meaning that the person feels contradictory. On the one hand, they go through the normal mourning and grief and loss and sadness that you would expect. But on the other hand, be, usually because of some problem in the relationship with the person who died, they also have a sense of relief that, it, that they're gone. True. Well, one thing I, I want to say about it is with the word grief, there's often an immediate correlation with the the five, the proverbial five stages of grief, the, the, the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And that model has been, I guess, under scrutiny, I guess it would be the, yes. the right, right, <laughs> does it work? Right. Um, I've, I have not found that to be true from, from my experience at all. And have, have you enc encountered any you know, accuracy in any, any shape, matter, or form as far as that, that goes? I think if you remove the stages, which implies linear, you know, A leads to B leads to C, and just look at it as at times people will feel depressed, at times people will want to bargain and so on, it makes a little bit more sense. But I think the way I think about Catherine Krubler-Ross's work is it was a springboard 
to at least open open up the dialogue about death and dying. Nobody had done that before her, and he, and she should be credited with at least drawing attention to it. And it served as a as a springboard then for further research. And what we know now really is that I think a better way to think about grief is that there is no part of your life that is left untouched by grief, especially traumatic grief. And secondly, that it doesn't occur in stages that you might, for example, be doing it's, let's say it's eight months down the road and you're, you're kind of getting it together. You're back to work and you, you sleep better and things are going along, but then suddenly something happens that reminds you of the person that died. Maybe you've run across a card from them or someone who doesn't know that they've died says, Oh, you know, how's Joe doing? And it just throws you right back into it. So it isn't quite that linear. It's a lot messier. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that's what I thought. Because there, there might be, um, yeah, that, that was the, the part that I've always had a, had trouble with, mm-hmm. was the expectation that that it would need to follow a specific order, a specific, right. um, yeah. So that's something that, that I, now the um, other thing I wanted to ask is, as far as grief and bereavement, and specifically grief and bereavement as it relates to being a homicide survivor, there is not, at this point in time, I, I've not found, re, and, and I, I, want, I want to mention two organizations, which I mentioned because they're, they're the predominant mainstream mental health groups, which would be the National Association of Mental Illness, and Mental Health America. And when I did a search on their website for, for grief, there were n- numerous results for, for grief, but th- there were none that were specific to grief as a result of, of, of homicide, such as what you've described. That's true. And That's true. so I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the reason for that omission or underrepresented place in the mental health dialogue? I'm so glad you asked me that question. I think that's a very important (laughs) question. And I want to add that it's not only being ignored by mental health organizations, it's being ignored, ignored by academic research, by other podcasts, by Hollywood, by any way you want to look at it. Uh, Homicide survivors is an overlooked minority group, I guess you could put it that way. And I think most people don't think about the long-term repercussions. I, th- I think they address grief and, and these, and we sometimes see movies and podcasts and research dealing with the act of death, but not what happens 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road to people who have been subjected to violent loss and someone they care about, whether or not as a family member makes a little difference. It could be a best friend, a coworker, they could be a first responder or just a witness. It still will have an impact on them. Yes. And so we're at now where we're having to kind of like a grassroots beginning and helping one another. I think another reason that this has sort of been relegated to the far back corner of mental health is because of what's happened in a parallel way within the legal system. Because until very recently, the survivors left behind, those grieving the loss of somebody murdered, were not welcome in the courtroom. They were viewed as a nuisance, as a distraction, as unwanted. And in fact, for years, the media had more rights in the uh, courtroom than did the family members and uh, the ones impacted by the death. And they've had to fight for their rights to get things like victims advocates and a right to have a safe place to assemble to be 
present at parole hearings to be notified when the court is even going to take place. We're always, it seems like an afterthought. Um, and I think partly that's our fault because I think when you are going through rec trying to recover from a homicide, you don't want to talk to anybody. You're so overwhelmed and depressed, you withdraw. You withdraw from everybody, including other homicide survivors. And so it's both society pushing you away and I think we pull away. And as a result, we're in the dark and we're an unknown. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, and you had just alluded to this, is there is a, I guess stereotype would, would apply of many of the trials being a public defender on, on one side and um, a private practice attorney or other designated attorney, as the case may be, on the other side. And so at least in my mind, there has always been that stereotype that has sort of stuck in the media, in a lot of the media's depiction where the, the, um, the where, where the suspect in the trial is assigned uh, essentially an intern. I say, I say intern somewhat facetiously. Uh -huh. um, a public defender. Yeah. But, um, but how, how true or inaccurate would, would you say that is compared to the reality of the situation? The reality of it, a lot of times, I'd say 90 to 95% of the time, murders are not even going to make it to a courtroom. Mm -hmm. They are settled by a plea bargain. And so you have the DA on one side and the, and, uh, the defense on the other, and they, they want to get this resolved and, and off the docket. And it's very quick. And there's pros and cons to that. Uh, and so you don't even get to the trial point of it. I have my mixed feelings about that. I mean, it's on the one hand, you know that there's there's going to be no question of the person being found innocent because they're admitting guilt mm -hmm. for a lesser charge. So it takes that away, that worry. And he also spares the family from having to review, having to look at gruesome evidence. Mm -hmm. And it's also much quicker. Mm -hmm. So there are pluses to having these plea bargains. On the other hand, when it came to my situation, I did not want a plea bargain. I wanted yeah. them to stand yeah. for murder and I wanted to have a court. I wanted them to be tried publicly and, mm -hmm. and, be, and face publicly what they had done. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So but to get back to your point, the, the person who's accused will have an attorney. Then the state prosecutes them. And they're, in the United States anyway, there is no attorney representing the homicide survivor, the, the closest we would have, which is in about 35 states now, is a victim advocate. They're not an attorney. They're more like, I think of them as an interpreter. They, they know the legal system and they kind of usher you through it and explain what's going on. But you're, you're not really that welcomed in a courtroom because uh, there are people that worry it biases the case against the defendant. Well, yeah, because one of the things that really struck out for struck um, out at me was I had been called to jury duty uh, a few years ago, and the the details of, of the case I, I don't recall ex exactly what the, what they were, but the proceedings and the circumstances of, of, of just the the setting alone, just the setting, was completely removed from what I had experienced. Before, oh. and I had I had been notified for a character re reference about maybe ten years prior to that. There was a a friend 
in uh, Tucson, Arizona, who was killed on a bicycle. There was a, a truck that drove by and, and, and there was a um, trial from that. And during the time of the trial, his family had uh, reached out to me and requested a letter being um, that, that I prepare a letter to, to send it to, to the court. So that and the jury duty are pretty much the, the, the two experiences that I've had in, the, in that, that circumstance. Mm -hmm. um, so but as far as when there's depictions of that in, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a TV show like Law and Order or in a movie or whatever, do you often see that those depictions are accurate to what you've experienced or are they more, you know, embellished for, for, for Hollywood? They're, they're highly dramatized. Okay, I think some of the big differences would be there's a lot of times you're just sitting and waiting while they're in mm -hmm. chambers. Uh, there is... Um, some dry testimony, very technical stuff that they talk about that's over the average person's head. Um, then there are, it's punctuated with times that it's very dramatic. Um, and it's a, a lot of the learning curve for a homicide survivor when they're in attendance at a court is to get on board with even the legal terms. We have to learn what nolo contendere means. And uh, the different degrees of homicide, you know, first degree, second degree, and negligence, so on, yes. and all that implies, and and it's coming at a time when you're really starting usually just to recover from initial effects of the homicide, because it usually takes months, sometimes years, for the case to come to court if it comes to court. And as I said, yeah. that's a minority of cases, yeah. so your 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 head's not in it all the way, and. The other thing that usually happens is people desperately want a trial for their loved one. They want to have the person convicted. And if they're found innocent or if it's a hung jury, it's devastating. And even in cases when the person is convicted, people leave the room feeling like, well, now what? They've had all their eggs in that one basket for so long that they want, they want a prosecution and they want a conviction and then they get it. And then it's like, okay, now what? And I have a case um, on my podcast now where this family got a successful conviction of this man who killed their granddaughter. She was only two. And he served, this guy was 6'6", six, six, and he murdered a two-year-old by punching her in the gut. And um, he was served 20 years. He did not get out for good behavior. He served the full 20 years. He got out, and he moved across the street from the family. And there he sits today. So it's not over. And that's a myth that a lot of the people in the public don't understand is it's a myth that the trial is closure, that somehow it's over and wrapped up. It isn't. It, it, there is no closure. That's a fallacy. Well, as, as far as some of the, 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 the changes that need to be made and the changes that hopefully are, are in, in the process of, of being looked at, are those more at a federal level or would those be on, on a state level? Or, or more on a state about, level. More on a state level? The, the, the chief uh, thr uh, thrust of all this came from California uh, with the enactment of Marcy's Law. And Marcy's Law, I forget the exact year. I think it was around 1990, but I could be wrong about that. Marcy's Law was the first one to say, you know, we have our rights too. And this is a civil matter. And 
We have the right to be informed when these court hearings will be, take place. We want to be present at parole hearings and so forth. And little by little, each state is adopting that or a version of Mar uh, Marcy's Law, but it's not nationwide by any means. And even though there are some federal laws on the books, there's no teeth in them. There's no way to enforce them. Now, the, um, another thing that I wanted to ask about was the role of all this with uh, first responders who will respond to, and I'm presuming you mean inclusive of, uh, you know, be it police officers, and law enforcement, or uh, paramedics, et cetera, et cetera, every, anyone in that, in that category? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. Um, how, how does this relate to, to those in the, the first responder role? It relates a great deal because they live and breathe this. I mean, I'm not saying every single day, but they have a steady diet of seeing the worst, you know, car accidents yes. and shootings and like this little girl that was kicked in the gut and killed. I mean, they see it in their career multiple times. And unfortunately, they live in a suck it up career, which is you don't talk about it. You don't give into it. You just keep going on. And it does have a cumulative effect. <laughs> And there is not uh, an easy way to address this. Now, there are some big, I know of two podcasts right now that are out specifically devoted towards first responders to help them deal with their own PTSD. But it's difficult because once you admit to having emotional responses to these things, you are viewed with a stigma. And sometimes it can be a career ending thing. They'll take your gun from you or you're yeah. assigned to a desk or yeah. your partner doesn't want to work with you now that you're quote, have a mental problem. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's devastating. And, it's, and then that doesn't even begin to touch upon the fact that sometimes they have familiarity with the people in the accidents and the yeah. might be their neighbor that they know. And uh, it's and they always say that the children are the hardest cases to deal with, mm -hmm. especially if they're parents mm -hmm. and they have children the same age. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you think if the and, and my understanding is that there are some degree of initiatives that are being presented to different law enforcement agencies and police departments? Do you see that having? An effect as far as that goes in terms of uh, reducing the negative impact for those who, or do you think that it will be longer term than what would be indicative of, of those initiatives? I think it can only have a positive impact. I think it helps us look at them as, you know, they're people too. They're not machines coming out to arrest <laughs> people and to take yes. supports. Uh, and if it, if it helps them become more effective in their jobs, if it helps them function better at home, it, it, it can only have a positive spillover effect on everyone. No, I think it'll be a positive thing because we want to see them as three-dimensional people Definitely. Uh, Definitely. who have feelings and who have losses and second guesses and survivor guilt and all of other things that they're not allowed to talk about, not with anybody. Mm -hmm. And it's about time, I think, that we allow them that ability to do that. And back there was about three or four years ago, I forget the exact name of it, but it was the first international symposium on first responder suicide, which has gone up dramatically since the last couple of years. And I think it's partly in response to PTSD. Good, because it's a, and that's one of my um, things that I look forward to is, is a day when the, when, when you do have that, that greater level of, of awareness in, mm -hmm. in, the, in those police departments and in, in those law enforcement agencies that 
uh, you know, I, ideally it could um, be, be brought to light and a lot of the job loss and, and stigma that you're talking about that that could be um, dealt with right. in, in due time. So, I, I'm, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I'm optimistic that that could in due time um, mm -hmm. come, come to fruition. Um, one thing I, I did also want to mention is I know you've, you've probably heard the, the cliche about it being the, you know, the, the, the small things that you remember when, when, when someone is gone. Um, what about the, the things that are, are not quite, the things that you can't really put, put, put a finger on that, that are like, like a, a nagging feeling, for lack of a better word? The what feeling? Like the nagging feeling. Like just the, the the nagging feeling where there's something that, and I think some some of my people might be the, the the closure part of it, just never having that definitive answer if, if that makes sense. So you're asking me like when someone passes away, the kind of memories that flood back. Exactly. Yeah, little stuff that kind of sticks out more than others. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like anything else. If you look back at your childhood, you're not going to remember all of it. If I were to ask you what you ate on their eighth birthday, you might not remember yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so some of it will fall away. Uh, and some of it will be very clear. Mm -hmm. I think if you have conflicted grief, that gets more difficult because mm -hmm. it's, it's such a stigma within your mind mm -hmm. as to even acknowledging that they had good parts as well as bad. Yeah, right. But also this is where it's important to have people who knew, who knew the deceased person well talk to the homicide survivor about their stories or things that they remember. And it will help them to see their losses in a, in a bigger way and uh, look, at, look at some of the positive and, and be an allowed to talk about some of the negative and that's such a stigma that they're not allowed to you know speak of the dead kind of thing but sometimes you need to and you need to say you know i i never appreciated how he handled our kids he he wasn't the father i wish he would have been but he was a good husband that to carry that kind of burden inside of you when you're already dealing with homicide is tough enough so you do need confidants around you who won't judge you, no, regardless of what your memories are, good, bad, or indifferent. And we don't have that. We don't, many of us. And that's why we come together as a group. And I'm, I'm actually glad to hear you say that because one of the things that I've had a hard time with in, in, in my own mental health journey is the notion or the expectation that I automatically um, exempt someone who has you know bipolar or depression or anxiety et cetera et cetera that that designation or diagnosis automatically makes a person a saint and that uh. they're fallible and above a reproach and so when there's a, when there's always the the notion that a person, whether it be someone with us or someone who's no longer with us, that that person is not afforded the chance to simply be a three-dimensional person. That's something that I've always had a problem with, like, mm -hmm. like putting someone in like an untouchable category, in other right. words. And I know, you know, when I'm gone, I would hope that people would, you know, not, not you know, that, that I would at least have, have, you know, kind of pro, con, you know, mixed, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I, I think ultimately that's what, you know, most people would, I would imagine, would want to remember to have um, a full, you know, three-dimensional um, 
because that, that's how how life is. I mean, right. <laughs> that's ultimately how 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 life is. So, right. uh, but that's something that that I've I've had a problem with. Um, yeah, you want to be realistic about people's lives. I mean, nobody's a saint, and we all are fallible. And it's okay not to be perfect. Exactly. We're not. Exactly. We never will be. Exactly. I mean, so. We're, we are all, you know, I guess a project in the making and you do the best you can with what you have, hopefully. Uh, not all people even do that. But I, I think that we are putting a burden on people by expecting them to remember people in this glorious way that they never were. Yeah, Especially and I, if it was a troubled relationship. Let's say the person was abusive towards their mm -hmm, children mm -hmm. and you make that child, you know, idolize the parent now that they're gone. That's not right. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you have to provoke them into exactly. name calling either, but yeah. to say, you know, he's got good traits and bad and he mm -hmm. was, I miss certain things about him and not so much other things. That's conflicted grief. And mm -hmm. we don't have a place for that in this society. Yeah, and that's something that, when you say that, that's something that really, really resonates with me because I am not a fan of the, you know, putting people on a, on a pedestal. That mm -hmm. that approach just has never has never worked for me. It's sanitary. And it's it's yeah, editorized. Exactly. exactly. And so the, the the conflicted grief that you talk about that really really resonates with me. I think it's far more common than we know. We don't mm -hmm. talk about it. We don't research it. We don't have it in movies. Mm -hmm. But it's common, I believe. I mean, if you have let's say an elderly parents of a thirty year old son who's been doing drugs, who's robbed them, who's drained their bank accounts with multiple failed attempts at going through chemical dependency treatment and who has his friends come over and rob them and cause nothing but agony. And then that individual ends up overdosing and they're gone. Yes. You can't tell me that there's not a part of those parents that are going, <laughs> not yeah. that they wish him dead, yeah. not that they think he's all bad, but there's got to be a part of them that it's like, that's over. I don't have to have this fear anymore. True and and so like I said when I when I saw that that part of of, of your material that's something that that really really resonates with me because I, I I simply don't see that in a lot of mental health uh, circles. No, you it's don't. It's something that's seen as insensitive or that someone doesn't understand. And and for me, and I'm not sure possibly for you, it's almost just the opposite. It's, and, and this bridges another issue, which mm -hmm. I think I have, I have problems with, yeah. and that is that in the mental health uh, culture right now, the idea is that you must forgive, mm -hmm. regardless, the abuser, the person, whatever they've done to you. And uh, I don't agree with that. I think mm -hmm. that that's an option. If people want to forgive, that's fine. But I don't think anybody has the right to say you will forgive somebody and if you don't then you're half of a person or you're going to live your life will be and be bitter and depressed and enraged i don't think so i think there's a third option and between forgiving and not forgiving and that is look work at becoming indifferent and just put it behind you and move forward but i think it's that's another burden that homicide survivors do not need is to have them expected to forgive past quote sins of the persons who've died especially if they were abusive. No, I don't. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's something that, and I, I hope you're okay with me saying this, but I am very happy that I had you on, that I have you on the, the podcast today. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy because I agree with a lot of the um, message and, 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 um, and uh, I mean, just with that right there, I 
know all too well about being lectured by people who think that they know and it's so it's something that I do have a problem with as well as far as how I've been treated mm-hmm. um, I did want to ask um, and, and we got to wind down in a few minutes but um, when people often will mean you know their, their, their well wishes or condolences there are times when it's on, on the receiving end of it it's not always received as it was intended right and what would be what would be um the the best way for someone to express their um sorrow for i think a lot depends on how close you are with that person if it's a distant coworker, you know i think you can be a little bit more formal and and simple and just say i'm really sorry for the loss you've had and what you're going through and leave it at that but if you know the person well you're your close friend or relative of the person, then I think you can be more honest with them and say, like in my situation, I wish somebody would have said to me, your situation is so complex. I bet you don't know what to think at this point. I really feel for you in that situation. I wish one person would have said that to me. (laughs) You know, Um, I think another thing that people can do is rather than say, call me if you need something. I don't recommend that because people don't know what they need. They're so overwhelmed. I think it's far better to say, I'm going to call you in a week. And what I'm going to offer to do for you is something that I know you need doing, which is a, like maybe take your cat to the vet or get your oil changed or mow your lawn, or I'm going to come over and grocery shop for you. Something that you actually know that they really would benefit by suggest that that's what you're going to do rather than leave it to them to come up with something. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, well, I, I do um, thank you for, for, for being here today. I wanted to ask, was there anything that I did not ask about that, that you'd like to add? Uh, just if you know somebody that has lost somebody to a homicide, please check in on them after four to five, six months after the loss, because that's about the time support fades. And the reality of what they've, they're dealing with is setting in, and they can feel so alone. And it doesn't have to be in person. You could write a letter. You could leave a message, I am I, I message, anything. But check in on them from time to time, and don't forget them. Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, um, I did want to uh, mention a, a couple of resources um, for mental health. I know there's the, the Mental Health America at mhanational.org. There's also uh, NAMI, um, NAMI.org. What are some other um, resources that I might not have mentioned that, that I could share? The specific ones that would be of use to homicide survivors would be in the United States, there's the Parents of Murdered Children, POMC. Parents of Murdered Children originally was founded just to to deal with parents who've lost children through homicide, but they are much more broad than that. If if you need a resource in your community for an adult death, they'll they'll do their best to help you. There's also a Canadian version of that, the children, the Canadian version of uh, POMC, C-P-O-M-C. Another group is Compassionate Friends, and another is uh, Survivors of Suicide is another good group. Uh, so, and Marcy's Law, if you want to learn, uh, look it up on the internet in terms of victims' rights. 
Oh, is that Marcy? Is M A R C Y spelling? Yes, Marcy. That's okay. correct. M A R C Y apostrophe S Marcy's mm -hmm. Law. Um, those are, those would be a good pl place to start with. Okay, good deal. Good deal. Well, well, again, I do thank you for for um, coming on, on the show today. Um, I do thank you at home or in the car or at home wherever wherever you're listening. Um, thank you for listening and um, stay safe. And um, talk with you next time.